Hey, good day, friends. This is Reiko Zek coming to you on a beautiful, snowy day from western New York. You're listening to Jesus in the Center One Year Bible Podcast. Today is day number 20. Hope and pray that you are having a great weekend. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's jump right in. So yesterday we see that that God had put Joseph on this journey that he would not have chosen, right? He didn't he didn't want to go through all these things that he was suffering, but he's now coming out of it. The the chief uh, cup bearer of Pharaoh remembers that there was a guy who could interpret dreams. Because remember, Pharaoh had two dreams, and they mean the same thing. And none of his magi or magicians could tell him what the dreams meant. They call for Joseph, and I like this. This is from yesterday is where we ended. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Yesterday, Joseph is is ending our reading saying, yeah, I might be able to interpret your dream, but it's not because of me. It's because God gives it. And so he gives credit to God, yet he also is willing to do his part. That's a, that's a good attitude for us to have. Well, the dream, as you know, maybe from Sunday school or reading, is that there will be seven years of plenty, a great plenty, and then seven years of great famine. And Joseph tells Pharaoh this, and he says it's set. He says, because, this is verse 32, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. God is, I think one of the words for this is sovereign, or he is in control. He is at work. And that's the thing I love about this this book of Genesis, which I've read this, you know, a few times, several times. But this time, as I'm reading through, I'm noticing just how much God is at work. In the past, I've focused on the responses of the people, which is good, but I'm this time learning, wow, it is God who is making all of this happen. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who will bring a rescuer. It's it's a beautiful thing to for me. I'm having fun. Well, here's the interesting thing. Joseph, in his boldness, he interprets the dream for Pharaoh, but then he has... He has confidence and boldness to add a plan to Pharaoh to interpret and, and give a solution for Pharaoh. He, we could say he adds wisdom to the dream or to the problem. So he says, now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. And I wonder if he's, <clears throat> you know, um, you look at me, maybe set him over the land of Egypt. And he gives him a plan to collect the abundance and then distribute it in that time of need. And if Joseph had not been bold, if he just said, good luck, Pharaoh, I hope it all works out, and gone back to where he was in the dungeon, I don't think you know it worked out as well. Because of Joseph's confidence, boldness, wisdom, so many people's lives were preserved, not only in Egypt, but as we can see uh, later, it says that all the earth, that's hyperbole, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain. So uh, we're reading ahead there a little bit, but uh, Joseph, I love this, he has this great confidence. And Pharaoh also has some good common sense. I need a wise and discerning man. Well, I'm not going to choose any of my magi, my magicians. They let me down. They didn't know anything. Who am I going to pick? Hmm, let me think about it. <gasps> Joseph, would you be willing to be my wise and discerning man to be in charge of all this? And in fact, he is selected. What a change. What a change. And this, I think, is a, a type of Christ's resurrection and his ascension. He goes from the dungeon, 
right, to a place second only to Pharaoh. He is given his, you know, all these things that signify he's in charge. Pharaoh wanted it to be clear that this man is in charge. Other than me on the throne, this is the next man. Listen to him. So Pharaoh, verse 45, he's going to make him a good Egyptian. Pharaoh called Joseph's name, say this one fast, Zaphineth Paniah. Zaphineth Paniah. I can't even do it. I can't say it twice. <laughs> fast. Well, no one really knows what his new name means. Some really smart guys have said it means this. The God has said he will live. That's a good fitting name for Joseph. The God has said he will live. Who is the God? I don't know. They have many, many gods. Other people think that Joseph name, Joseph's name means the God speaks and lives. So I think Joseph could, with a good conscience, take this new name as his nickname. The God has said he will live. What a good reminder. God had brought him, the true God had brought him up out of the prison, out of the pit. And then notice, he gave him in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So he is married to the daughter of a priest. And Pharaoh probably thought, well, I must have him marry into a priestly family. This man has, as he said before, the spirit of God. I must have him into a religious household. And so he marries the, the daughter of the priest of On, whose name Potiphera is named after the god Ra. So he is definitely initiated into this very pagan culture with his, with his family and his job and all these things. By the way, Asenath, her, his wife, her name probably means she belongs to the goddess Neat, right? So all of you Monty Python fans say, Neat, 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 or bring us a shrubbery, Neat, Neat, we will say Neat. Well, her name means she belongs to the goddess Neat. All right, so sorry, that was bad. Uh, I shared a video on our Facebook page. It does The question from Chad Bird is a scholar at 1517.org, which I, I recommend following that website. He thinks that, or he poses the question, is Joseph becoming too Egyptian? Is he becoming too uh, pagan? Is he, is he leaving his Jewish roots of believing in the one true God, Yahweh, who created heaven and earth? And is he believing in these many gods? Well, he's married into this family where, of course, they believe in many gods. They have a God for the sun. They have a God for death. They have a God um, for food, for fertility, many, many gods. Whereas our God is one God for all those things and has control and power over them. Well, he does ha is blessed. They have two children. They are given not Egyptian names like Joseph now has, Zaphineth, Penea. They are given Hebrew names. So I think this is an important thing. I don't think Joseph is becoming too Egyptian. They are given Hebrew names. The first one is Manasseh. Probably means to forget. Um, has he forgotten? He says, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. And Chad Bird, again, he, he suggests that it's like this. God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. So he's not going to dwell on the suffering that he went through because of his father's, uh, because of his brothers. The second one, second son, he names Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. His name means something like fruitful. So interesting and important that he gives them names that would um, signify that they are Hebrew. 
All right, well, all in all of this, God is at work and uses Joseph to set aside all the grain of the, the harvest and then have it ready in the time of famine. And then we see in God's will, God's planning, that this would bring Joseph's family back down to Egypt. So they do, the ten brothers do go down, uh, all of them except for Benjamin, the, the beloved son of, of Isaac, the last born little baby. And they all come down, and um, just interesting here how Joseph tests them and says they're spies and all this. So Joseph here is hiding his identity. He swears by the life of Pharaoh, uh, which would keep him his identity hidden. I swear by the life of, of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. So Joseph is testing them. He wants to know, have these guys changed? Are they the same uh, jerks who sold me into slavery? Right, are they? He wants to know if they've changed. Also, he remembers the dreams that he had dreamed. And so he he tests them. Is he acting out of revenge, out of spite? I don't know. Perhaps, but God will give them a, a blessed a blessed reunion as we continue to read the story. Well, let's flip over to uh, our Matthew reading. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is telling parables. Yesterday we focused on the parable of the sower, the farmer, who wastefully just casts his seed everywhere on the side of the path, on the rocks, in the weeds, and then, of course, in the good soil. So the question in that parable is, why don't all the seeds grow? Why don't all the people who hear this message of the kingdom believe it? And we talked yesterday because there's three things. The message is stolen by the devil when people don't understand it. When people go through hardship, uh, persecution, they, they turn away from it. And when people go through good times, they forget the, the message. And so the birds, the rocks, the weeds, um, they steal, they, they burn up, and they choke the seed. And so the question there yet, what yesterday was, why don't all the people believe? Today we come to another parable of, of planting, of the message of the kingdom going out. This is the parable of the weeds. And the question here is, how are there false Christians? Whereas before it's, it was clear, there's Christians and then there's those who fall away from the message of Christianity. Today the question is, how are there indeed false Christians even within the same, we could say, field or church? The kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed these seeds in his field. And while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And this weeds here is probably something called darnel. It's translated tares and other versions of the Bible. And it's a plant that looks a lot like wheat, at least until the wheat starts to bear seeds, you know, the, 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 the top of the wheat, the, the seed head. Well, when Darnell makes seeds, it looks totally different, and you can tell the difference. But at first, it looks the same. So it's an imposter wheat. And so Jesus is answering the question, how are there false Christians? He says, there is a different planter, a different farmer, an enemy who comes in with a different message, and he is planting seeds. He is making converts, and we can see that in our world, right? There are inside the church, not even outside, but inside the church, there are those who are imposters, who, who cling to a different message, not a gospel, not the gospel, but a different gospel, something else that will bring us, quote-unquote, salvation. And it, it's never the gospel of Christ, that he is Lord, uh, that he died for our sins, he rose again from the dead, he reigns in heaven, and he will come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. That's not that gospel. It's something else. You can read about that in Galatians 
that whole letter was written to those who, in some sense, are clinging on to a different gospel uh, and are turning themselves into weeds. As Jesus explains this parable a little bit lower, verses 39 to 43, he explains that it will all it will all work out in the end. In the end, uh, when these these true wheat and these weeds are separated, it will all work out because the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This, no doubt, is a reference to Daniel chapter 12, uh, verse 3, how those who are risen again to life will shine like the sun. Reminds me, makes me think, anyway, of Adam and Eve, who likely in the beginning shone in glory. And that is our destiny. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I think originally we had the glory of God even in our bodies. And as you read Romans 8 and other places in Scripture, you can see that this is this is our future. I don't understand it, but it will be glorious because uh, we will reflect the glory of God. And we do this by clinging to the good seed. That's the point. Cling to the good seed, the good message of the gospel. Well, there's a couple of other parables here, the mustard seed and the leaven. And the question here is this, why is the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, so small right now? Why are there so few who believe now? And and Jesus tells us, well, it is like uh, a mustard seed. A mustard seed is tiny, but it will get large and the birds of the air will nest in it. It'll, it will work itself out. And I read about this, that mustard plants in the land of Palestine, they get big. I, I've grown some mustard that's gotten four feet tall, but apparently in Palestine, there's mustard plants that get 15 feet tall. You know, it doesn't freeze apparently in some places, and so it gets big. I don't know. You can read Ezekiel 17, 23 uh, as a reference to the kingdom that will provide resting place for the birds. And this is akin to... God's bringing in the nations to the kingdom of God. And there's the parable of the leaven or the yeast. And Jesus himself here describes himself as the woman who took and hid in three measures of flour this yeast until it was all leavened. The kingdom is like yeast. It, it grows quietly and yet it changes everything. Thanks be to God that it is Jesus who describes himself as the woman who mixes it in. He's at work. Right, then we have two other parables. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This has been interpreted a couple of ways. Let me tell you the first one, which, by the way, I like both of these, and I think they can both be true. The kingdom of heaven what is it worth? What's the kingdom of heaven worth? And here Jesus says, it's worth everything. Sell everything else you have because the lasting value of the kingdom of God is worth it. Sounds good, right? Jesus does tell us similar things other places. Unless you take up your cross and deny yourself, uh, you will not find life. But if you deny yourself and follow me, you will have life, right? So we see Jesus saying these sorts of things. Another way to take this, the kingdom of heaven is about the king, the king who has come. And so the question is, what are we worth to the king? This isn't so much about the disciples as it is about the king. The king has found treasure hidden in a field. And the king 
finds it and covers it up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Who indeed has come down from heaven, given up everything for us? Who is the merchant who has found fine pearls and has sold all that he has to buy it? Well, it is Jesus who has sold all. We are told that we are bought with a price. We are no longer our own. So therefore, we can glorify God in our body. Jesus is the man who has found us and given up everything. He's the merchant who has sold everything for us. Well, that is the the gospel way to take that. I think you can take it both ways and ponder the rest of your days. Well, go in peace. Serve the Lord. Thanks be to God.